Welcome back and thank you very much for sticking around. Now we're moving on to our feature where we're talking to and about the faith of our leaders and our leader for tonight is Reverend Frank Chigani. And this is one of the leaders, religious leaders, who is not only known for being just a religious leader, but he has been known to be a very influential political leader. And so he joins us now to give us some perspective. Not only is he talking to us now about his political prowess, we're focusing mainly on his spiritual side. Reverend Chigani, good evening to you and thank you very much for agreeing to talk to us. Yeah, good evening and good evening to your listeners. All right, uh, let's, let's, let's begin first and foremost and talk about Frank Chigani. Yeah. When, when you mention the name Frank Chigana to many of my peers, we're talking about this one minister who apparently has a wide-ranging view of things and a way of delivering politics like he's delivering a gospel. Do tell us where mm. that comes from. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, I think, um, you know, most people don't understand this. But I came into politics from my spiritual perspective. Okay. Uh, there is no Chikani that came before me who was a politician. I followed. You know what I'm talking about. Okay. So I, I, I was a staunch Christian. My family brought me up as a young person who became the school teacher, became a youth leader, and ended up uh, being trained as a pastor, although I started preaching the gospel, doing student ministry with the student Christian movement. But you see, at the time I was at secondary school, with the student Christian movement in high school, we had to account for our faith. Because the question was, was Christianity uh, part of the colonialist strategy to take the land from us and give us the Bible? You know, and my debate with P.A.T. Machine at Morris Isaacson was classical. I went to speak there, and he stood on the top of a desk and challenged me, and I said... We can't finish this when we finish when we can't do all this in the service. When the service is over, let's talk. And we set up to eight o'clock in the night at Morris Isaacson. Yeah. In Orlando High where I was again the same happened. And at the University of the North, the same challenges. So the question was, does God really care about the pain of the people? Oh. If God is God God must care about it. And our churches were telling us we must not be involved in politics, not politics. And I said, no, but this is not politics. It's about the lives of the people, which is different from party politics. And um, the way in which people live is critical. Yeah. Uh, you are still there. I'm here. I'm here. And, and so, and so, God must care. If God created us holistic human beings, He didn't create ghosts. He didn't create a spirit without a body. He made sure the spirit is in the body, and this body lives on earth, not in heaven. 
Yeah. And it has got pain, it, it goes hungry, yes. it goes cold. And when you torture me, I I feel the pain, even if I'm a Christian. Okay. The pain is there. So you can then separate your spirituality from your life here. And so we had to deal with those issues and ask questions that are close to heretical. Because we had to say, we must, uh, when I addressed the students on Adohai in 1971, I can't forget that because there was a clash between Christian students and the student movement. On, on campus okay. at, at Orlando High, and because I stayed far in Kaji, I left early, and so this happened in my absence. When I came back the following day, I said to the principal, call all these leaders in one room, let's talk to them and end this thing. Yeah. And I had to develop the first theological treatise without going to a theological college. Yeah. I said, we have a responsibility to reread the Bible, reinterpret it, and then liberate it from the oppressor. That that was the theme in 1971. Yeah. And and the rereading of the Bible is that they gave us a particular perspective from a colonialist perspective, and and I used the text about the Samaritan woman. Yeah. Because the Samaritan woman who met the Lord Jesus Christ uh, was that Samaritan woman where they talked about how many husbands yes. and all that. You remember that yes. story? Yes. But it is that woman who went to the, the community there and said to them, come and hear what I have said. Yes. Come and see what I have said. The fact that she was a sinner uh, disappears. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, but yeah. she becomes the carrier of the message. So I said, turn it around, yeah. because this one looks, uh, you know, uses a woman, unfortunately, as an example. And I turned it around and said, the missionaries came here and preached the gospel. Yeah. We received it. But actually, that they were oppressors themselves should not take away the gospel from us. Let's 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 fast forward to 1981, Reverend Chigano, yeah. because my curiosity yeah. is on how the apostolic faith mission would suspend you and why. Yeah, no, that's precisely the point. The point is that once I started reinterpreting the scriptures, uh, rereading the scriptures and making it relevant to the people in terms of God. And I'm saying, God is not a God of white people or black people. If yeah. God is a God of the whole created reality, yes. then we must be equal. We can't have apartheid in the church. Was, was, the, AFM so the, time, to, was the AFM at, yeah. the, at the time supporting apartheid? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, the apostolic trade mission, of course, I mean, I must start from saying, it's, it's united now, but at that time we had the African church colored Indian and white. Mm-hmm. And the white church was 
had abrogated the responsibility of being the church and the others adherent. Okay. It was exactly the same as the Dutch Reformed Church. Yeah, yeah. Remember in the AFM, although it's apostolic faith mission and people think it's one of the African independent churches, but actually the AFM is the one church that has the largest number of white and white Africaners uh, short of competing with the Dutch Reformed Church. Okay. The rest of the other churches, the Anglicans, the Methodists, yes. the numbers will be like 10%, 20% white. Yes. But in our case, at one stage it was 40%, 30% white. It's high. Okay. And they are Africaners, you know. And so they actually entrenched the apartheid into the ASM. And that's when I challenged it yeah. with others of my colleagues and said, this can't come from God. It is unbiblical um, and therefore cannot be uh, accepted. And I also said to them, if you go to no life of my own, you'll see my submission to them yeah. about the disciplinary action they were taking. Yeah. And I said to them, before I preach the gospel, like I'm told you now, in Morrisville, Exchange, and other places, and at the University of the North, I have to start by confessing first the sins of the church okay. before I tell them about the good news yes. of the Lord Jesus Christ. That affects the message you are carrying, the integrity of your message is affected. And I said we must end apartheid within the church and in society then we'll be closer to what God wants us to be like. And okay. that is what they tend on me about. Yes. I mean, there, there was also the issues, of course, about finances where they raise money and they take you to a white church to go and sing and mission day, they collect money, yeah. but then they don't account to you. Okay. You okay. know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, and yeah, I said, yeah. no, you must account to us. And then when I said that, this missionary said, well, next time when we come to the meeting, I'll come and account to you. Yes. And he came, and the balance sheet was zero, zero, zero. <laughs> and he said, you must take, take care of Kaka. Yeah. You, you must raise your own money. Let's, and, let's... and I'm just indicating to you the evil we had to deal with within the church. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why I took a stand, and they decided to suspend me, read the suspension letter. Yeah. It says I I appear in the newspapers, I I embarrass the church, and therefore I'm under suspension, and I'm the only one who was suspended without a limit. Normally they say you are suspended for one year Mm. or whatever the case may be. I was suspended until I repent. (laughs) <laughs> that was in 1990, by the way, <laughs> when your suspension was Yeah, <laughs> and it took t- 10 years. I was in the wilderness for 10 years. Nine years, sorry. Yeah. Let's, let's... And the 10th year, I went back because yes. they, they repented. 
Yeah. And came and asked for forgiveness from me. But in truth, and then I was able to go back again. In in truth, Reverend Chigane, uh, you you may not, you may not believe that you were embarrassing them, but if you're going to be involved in drafting documents like the Kairos document, and and then you're going to be yeah. re- redefining the very church theology in that document, surely you do agree that you were embarrassing them a bit, eh? Oh, of course. I mean, the white section of the church they threatened to withdraw the support for the black church yes. because of me and that's why i was ready i i said withdraw before they suspended me i said no you can withdraw the support for me okay. because there was the subsidy yeah withdraw it and i and i went to work at that vet nuclear physics research unit yeah yeah um, in 19, um, I think it must be 1970, um, in the 70s. I went to work there and, and, and ran the congregation in Kahiso without being paid. Yeah. Because I said, no, you can withdraw me. You withdraw me, that's fine, but don't withdraw the money from the poor old pastors who were in the church there, you know. Yeah. Because that would be terrible. And so I was not paid by my church from 1976 up to 2010. Yeah. Tell me, yeah, tell, me tell me your, your inspiration for participating or even supporting the Kairos document, because this is one document that was widely fought by the government and some yeah. even are suggesting that even the Inkata Freedom Party was opposed to it. Tell me your support and for the Kairos document. What was it? Ask the question again. Your support. What What is it that you believe in about the Kairos document such that you would be associated with it? No, remember that it's not a support of the Kairos document. I came back from the children trial in 1985. Okay. And we were given bail of 10,000 rents each. Um, and I got released, came back. It was 85 in the midst of the crisis in this country. And I said to the Institute for Contextual Theology, I was leading, I was the director. I said to them, the crisis is too serious for us to continue with the normal seminars about theology to at the Institute for Contextual Theology. And I said we need to deal with this issue about ministering to people in a conflict situation. How do you minister to people who are being killed, tortured, detained, tortured, etc.? How do you do that? And that's when we started conversations which gave birth to the Kairos document. So okay. those who deal with that history will tell you yeah. uh, that I was the person who came oh. and said. So in a sense, we gave birth to the Kairos document. So I didn't support it from outside. Okay, okay. And at that particular point, remember, I was suspended already. Yeah. And, and yeah, by the time I dealt with the Kairos document, I was suspended already. And in in it, you you th- 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 there are some things that I was I thought perhaps w- it would be nice if I just invited you to talk about them. Just those, but I'm going to ask about one where it says God is on the side of the oppressed. Is it really, are you of the really of the view that God is on the side of the oppressed? 
Yeah, of course. God will be on the side of the victims of injustice. God is a God of justice and cannot allow injustice. And yet God and has allowed injustice. If, sorry? But God has allowed, he continues to allow injustice. We are still living in a country yeah. that is desperate. Yeah. God is yeah. still allowing because injustice. No, no, no. no. God, God is not a dictator. Um, the day he takes us to heaven, there will be nothing like this here. <laughs> but the point is that God does not tolerate justice. It's not injustice, and it's not on the side of injustice or oppressors. And God can't be on the side of people who create systems that work against the majority of the people. God is a God of justice, and God treats all of us as equals. There's no rich or poor, there's no white or black. Before God, we are the same. And therefore, that's why God will, the, the, the Old Testament, if you go there, will deal up with corruption and people who um, rob poor people and oppress poor people. I mean, it's clear. You read, you go through it through the Old Testament, you'll find it there. And in the New Testament, it's breaking the walls, you know, the division between the Gentiles and the Jews, for instance comes to an end, but we are busy building walls in Israel, Palestine, you know, instead of bringing down the walls. And so God is against the walls that divide people, it's against war, it's against conflict, it's against oppression, and for me, it's clear from the scriptures that that's the God I believe in, not the tribal God who takes sides with Mapulana, if I have to use the, you know, yes, the, yes. the ethnic group I come from, yeah. dialect and etc., yeah. against Zulus or Botswana or whatever the case may There's no God like that. Once that God behaves like that, it's an idol. When I read that document, I it, it sounds like something that is well-meaning and well-intended, however, does not resonate with actual scripture and the, 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 the conditions that obtained at the time in 1985 and even now, 2022. I'll give you an example, Reverend, and then you can rebut what I'm saying and, 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 and counter-argue it. We're talking about a God who allowed his own chosen nation to be in slavery in Egypt for years and he allowed them the, the bible says what over 300 years and then he sends a, a, a moses to go and liberate them and in that process of liberation he takes them to a land that is already inhabited by the canaanites and the other the, the amalekites and he goes and oppresses them takes away their land and he gives them the calls it the promised land, a land that belongs to people already living in it. The apartheid hooligans come to South Africa using that very same theology to come and take land, claiming it's their promised land. And yet you find Africans in Africa and then you're saying you're discovering it. Today, we're still suffering under the vestiges of the very same theology of a God who gives certain people certain rights to take land that already belongs to others. I'm not quite sure if this God really is a God on the side of the oppressed. 
Well, I, I think uh, we will have to go and do, deal with the theology of the Old Testament. Okay. You know, but, because that's where you are taking us to. And I would like to take you along. Let's visit Palestine and listen to Palestinian Christians dealing with that particular matter. But I mean, we, we don't have time now. We okay. need a whole workshop about it. The point is, God, that's why when I deal with the issue about Israel and Palestine, I say that Jesus came and died for all of us. And he said there will be no Gentile or Jew anymore. There will be no male and female. All of us. That's why Jesus came, because of that problem. Because when when God speaks, we understand our own things. So there are people here, Christians here in South Africa, for instance, who support Israel against the Palestinians yes. and don't care about the Palestinians. But actually, the greatest number of Christians in that region are Palestinians. And they don't even know about that. And the Palestinians are saying, you know, we Christians, we are brothers with you, but you are actually treating us like we don't exist. And then when you are there, and I mean Jordan, the Jordanian says, by the way, we are cousins with the Jews. Yeah. And we come from the same family. And, and so these people come from the same family. Yeah. And therefore, Jesus had to come to end this thing. Okay. And end the division and end the categorization, um, the differences between tribal groups and ethnic there is no God who is on the side of the West against the East, for instance. There is okay. no such a thing. All right. God well, loves everybody, even those who are not Christians. God loves them. Let's let's talk. Let's fast forward to um, um, 2006, the washing yeah. of your feet. <laughs> Do yeah, talk to us yeah. about that, because some people say uh, you were very easy. You were very. It was easy to convince you to just forgive. I mean, what what happened there? Now let's start from forgiveness before we get to Minister Flock. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's start from forgiveness. Okay. You know, my understanding of forgiveness is for my own healing. And I forgive not because a person has asked for forgiveness. I forgive and and go beyond the pain so I can get rid of the bitterness because the bitterness and anger affects the victim rather than the victimizer. Whilst you are angry and bitter, they are having a bright place and enjoying themselves there. (laughs) And and my my under my view was I need to forgive this guy. The deacon of my church who supervised my torture at the Krugerzon police station. Yes. Who left me standing on bricks, come back the following day, find me there underfed, being beaten up, tortured. And and I have to forgive that guy because yeah. if I don't, um it's me who gets hurt. Okay. rather than him. Okay. And in fact, the fear I have is that 
he might just repent, you know, okay. and give himself to the Lord, and I remain with my bitterness and go to hell, and he goes to heaven. Okay. I'm not going to allow that. Okay. And therefore, forgiveness for me is for my own healing. Wow. Um, um, and therefore, by the time Minister Flock came to me, former minister, I said to him, no, but I've forgiven you already. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to wash my feet. And he said to me, please, can you allow in me for my own sake, not for you? I understand that you are okay. Yeah. But I am not okay. And at that point is when I thought, well, I have a ministry of helping him to be okay because he's not okay. Okay. And so for me... It's, uh, it was not something I wanted. I persuaded him not to do it. Yes. But he insisted that I allow him to do it. And okay. I thought, wow. grant him his request. Wow. And wow. and you can see the man has gone out of his way. He goes to townships and brings food, does all sorts of things. Yeah. I think when a man says, I did terrible things. Yeah. But I I repent. Oh, I'm changing. Yeah. You can't say to that person, no, I sugar nana I'm not <laughs> yeah. going to help you. You okay. know, and then that's against my faith and okay. my understanding of my faith here. Yeah. All right. I would be I would be very wrong if I don't mention these two pieces of literature that I would encourage many to read. Uh, uh, um, yeah. Perhaps we could invite we could invite you to come and talk to us about them and uh, give us some insights behind them. I'm talking about now eight days in September and things that could not be said. Do do yeah. talk to us about eight days in September. Does this have anything to do with your faith, or is it just a political and administrative expose of what happened in the minds of the leaders at the time in those eight days in September? No, remember that uh, that's where we should have started, actually. That once I crossed the line and understood that God is concerned about a holistic human being, I then stopped differentiating between spirituality and politics. Okay. And, and therefore, when I'm engaged in politics, it's a spiritual act for me. Okay. When I'm a DG in the president's office, it's a spiritual act. Yeah. And the way I interact with people and deal with them, it, it reflects your spirituality. Yeah. And therefore, when I managed that crisis, it was part of a spiritual act for me. And so the book reflects uh, what I was grappling with in terms of the reality of the day yeah. and the risks for the country, the players were involved, yeah. and the dangers that it posed for the people. Because when things go wrong at political level, the ordinary person in a township or rural area gets affected. Yes, yes. And, and that was my concern. So the first book, Eight Days, I, I felt, because I was in on the scene, uh, in the center 
I was the only one who could write about that story. And things were falling apart. Yeah. Yes, and that's why I wrote it, and I took a risk. I paid a huge price. Uh, My comrades within the ANC made me a target. I I understand. I understand why. Also, you you do understand why as well, right? (laughs) No, no, no. I understood why. Because, I mean, I dealt with the issues of the day. Yes. And, I mean, the issue of removal of the day. I mean, how do you remove somebody when he's left with seven months to retire? Yeah. And we were playing farewell functions. He was going to travel and say bye-bye to his colleagues. Yes. And 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 then come back and we have an election and it's over. Yeah, uh, you remove him in the manner in which you are removed, and the only way to explain it, and that's why I got into trouble, and you'll find it somewhere in chapter eight yeah. or so. Yeah, the only way to explain it is that they wanted to kill the case yeah. against yeah. former deputy president Zuma. That's right. That's right. And they could not kill it and as long as Mbeki remained president for the last seven months. Yeah. And if he remained for the last seven months, then um, the deputy president, former deputy president Zuma would not have become president. Okay, okay. I, I can att- so they, they had to remove him. They had to remove him. Yeah. And But they removed him in a way that was very risky because if he said, no, I'm not moving, I'm not I'm not resigning as the ANC asks me to resign, what yeah. would have happened to the country? They, but they knew that this this is this is Mbeki. Mbeki would never say no to the ANC. So they calculated yeah, very the well. <laughs> they calculated the very point. well. No, that's the point. When they said deliver the letter at 7 on Sunday yeah. to PM, I said to the staff, no, tell the president you shouldn't stress. We'll give them the letter yeah. tomorrow in parliament. You don't deliver a resignation letter as a president at a party meeting. You don't do that. Yeah. And then as I was driving from Soweto to Pretoria, I was called and told that president says, give them the letter. Yeah. I don't want one soul to be lost because of me. And the country had to watch that painful address that night. That, yes, <laughs> yeah. it was very yeah. painful, but he chose to do that. But I'm just saying it was not big. Yeah. yeah. And it was another president. They could have had a crisis in this country. They could have been bloodshed. Yeah. And innocent people could have died. And that's why I felt I had a responsibility to write about it. Mbunis, um, I, I want to confirm that I have read what you're saying there um, in eight days, and I can confirm you that's what you're saying there, but you do understand that there are counter and contrary arguments to what you're saying. Quite frankly, they are arguing that you are misrepresenting the facts. You are simply representing only the Mbeki side of the argument. How do you respond to people who are saying you are being, uh, well, partisan, you're not being even-handed no. in deliberating the facts? Actually, that book is not about uh, taking sides with Mbeki. It's simply uh, relating the story as it happened. Uh, It's not on being on the side of Mbeki, if I say the Speaker of Parliament, who was uh, the 
the, the, in the executive committee at that time asked for the letter. But you go on to write um, things that could not be said, and you are giving more clarity on the positions of our President Mbeki there. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, but when you read it, remember that I had to say I'm the primary source. Yes. Let, let's take the issue of HIV and AIDS. Yes. You've got three chapters on that thing, on that issue, are in that book. And the first is dealing with drugs and Minister Nkosazana and etc. in the international world. The second deals with the HIV and AIDS debate in South Africa. And I simply state after that story was about from the point of view of those who were in that office because nobody will know that. Yeah. And I don't defend Ndeki about it. I simply say this is how it happened and how it was understood and how we ended up with a policy on HIV and AIDS in 2003 yeah. and began to implement it. You know, people still by 2007 were still arguing like Ndeki was still the Ndeki of 2002. Yeah. And we resolved that matter. This policy you are using now is the one we took to cabinet in 2003. And I thought it's important to explain to people the challenges we faced, um, his views and the risks. And when we went to him and said, Chief, your life is now at stake, you know, as president, because of this matter, the pharmaceuticals are up in arms. And we need to resolve this issue. And the lobbyists. Uh, yeah, move out of this matter. Yeah. You've made your point. You believe in what you believe. Yes. But now we need a policy of government. So if you go back to the records 2003, you'll see the policy being outlined there. In, in so in the, the, my, my role is not to... I'm not a person of... Uh, by the way, I do not make as a, it wasn't my friend or person, body. Yeah. I only met him in exile when I became general secretary of the, the SACC. And he and other leaders of the ANC visited me at home because I was general secretary mm. when they returned. <clears throat> and that he came to my home, Slovo came to my home, and, you know, uh, so... There's no taking sides. Let me just tell you something else which okay. many people don't know. Okay. That I, I I was close to the Zuma family as much as I still keep a relationship. I've not changed. They might have their own views. But when I came to know Comrade Zuma, when he brought my brother to me, my brother had gone to exile for 10 years. We had no contact with him. Yeah. And because I was under surveillance, I couldn't go and locate him. My father tried, went to Swaziland and other places, couldn't find him. When I was given a passport and started traveling, I asked Comrade so that, please find my brother. He found him. And he said, when you're outside the country, tell me where you are, I will bring your brother to you. And lo and behold, 
the person who brought my brother to me was Comrade Zuma. The first time I got to know him is when he brought my brother. Yeah. And my brother was infiltrated to Mozambique after the Komati Accord 1984. And when Zuma was taken out because of the Komati Accord, yeah. they infiltrated my brother to go and do what uh, part of what uh, Comrade Zuma was doing there. So my brother was close to the family. So when they returned here, oh, we were close. And when his dear wife, uh, Mama Kate, died, she called me to her bed. And so the, I don't wait. I don't work with people on the basis of attitude. These are God's people, man, and you treat them equally. But if somebody goes wrong, even if it's Becky who goes wrong, I will say so and say no. This is wrong. If it's Zuma, this is wrong. So I never take sides with anybody because that would be contrary to my faith. This is my final question, Mfundis, and I'll let you go. In hindsight, yeah. looking at all the positions that were taken at the time, or during the time you were Director General of the Presidency, do you not imagine perhaps there were certain decisions that could have been avoided to avoid much of the acrimony that was um, elicited by those decisions? And I'm giving the example now that you just talk, talked about of, of the HIV causing AIDS or AIDS caused by HIV debate and the uh, erstwhile denialism. Do you not imagine perhaps in hindsight uh, the decision you took latter could have been the former and avoided the former and ignored it? No, but that's what I've just said now. That that matter played itself out. Nicky does lots of reading and research will take you on on any subject. But when we came back from our trip in the United States, 2008, we had to sit with him and say, this matter is becoming a real problem for the country, for yourself, and we need to change course. It was not easy, but we did. And so when there is something that's challenging, we deal with it. And when the issue of, um, you know, former deputy president cropped up, I spent time with both of them at different times to try to deal with this matter. When I was a member of the National Executive of the ANC, and we tried to deal with it within the ANC. Unfortunately, we could not stop it. It happened, and it has cost this country dearly. Yeah. Uh, but we were there, and we had to deal with those issues. When yeah. you are there, it's your responsibility. Yeah. Look, Mvunis, I personally am grateful that you were particularly instrumental in managing those eight days. I can sometimes imagine if certain characters were at the helm of the office, things perhaps may have been managed differently. We've seen other countries managing the exit of a president differently. And we're grateful to you and those you are working with. Thank you ever so much for your contribution then and you coming through the program today. Ready. Thank you very thank much for this. Yeah, thank you very much. And thank you to your listeners. All right, that was Mvunsi Uchigane. Frank Chigane was uh, 
well, still is one of the great South Africans who have contributed in some of the greatest difficult times of this republic. That's how we're concluding our program for today. From me, Naya Lupondwana, and the rest of the team, have a wonderful evening and Godspeed.